0: If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I was thinking uh, as I was watching uh, CNN and various news outlets this week with all the unbelievable world news that's going on, um, from planes being shot out of the air, whether by accident or by purpose, uh, to the situation in Gaza. Um, and it just, this, this idea that, that, that kept coming up, especially in the news coverage of Gaza, And uh, apparently the the Israeli army dropped leaflets to the people in Gaza before, just warning them, be alert, be ready, move away from the borders. And then they called up reservists. The idea was be alert, be ready. You're going in this whole idea of escalation happening there and then the alertness that comes with everyone in and around it. And as I was thinking about uh, the passage that we're going to read this morning, it's really that sort of posture that we're called to. In spiritual warfare, to a posture of alertness that this battle is actually much more escalated than we actually believe here in the Western world, and the reason that we 're losing the battle is because we 're not alert to it, and if we would adapt a posture of alertness we 'd actually be able to engage it and then have the ba- some of the background we 'll talk about today to actually be victorious in it and so um, when we read this as we talk about this morning, kind of have that posture in your mind of, of alertness. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert, be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Let me read it one more time. Be alert. Be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Two commands that are central to these, these, uh, this little pericope, this segment of verses. The first is: be alert to the devil. The second is resist the devil, right? Be alert to the devil, resist the devil. So we want to talk about just those two things this morning and some uh, sub points to them as we understand uh, our engagement in the battle against the devil. So be alert to the devil. What does Peter mean when he's writing about these things? There's some interesting terms that he's used there. The first thing I want to suggest to you is that Peter wants us to know that the devil is real, right? That the devil is not sort of some cartoon-created figure that represents evil in the world, right? Uh, if you are like me, you grew up watching cartoons. And cartoons, when we grew up, are way better than cartoons that our kids watch now, correct? So we wa- I used to watch the Flintstones. And do you remember the, the Flintstones, Fred Flintstone? He used to have the, the alien guy that would come on his shoulder and talk to him. Or do you remember the other cartoons where, uh, I think maybe it was Looney Tunes or something like that, where he, they would have the angel cartoon on one shoulder and the, the devil cartoon on the other, and they're both talking into the, to the ear and which way is the person going to go. And we kind of have this image about Satan in this way that Satan is not necessarily real. He's just kind of the figure that we use to say that there's bad stuff in the world, right? And so it makes us in some ways point to Satan for everything bad that happens, when a lot, of what bad, a lot of the bad that happens is our own fault, our own doing, our own flesh, our own choices. Uh, but it also has sort of this, um, this way that doesn't allow us to really identify Satan and his effect on us. So listen to how Paul, Peter writes about Satan. He says that he is your enemy, right? Your personal enemy, and the word enemy actually could mean adversary, it could mean accuser, there's many different ways uh, to translate that. But the, 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 the word before it, your, is really the central word in this understanding that, that Satan is actually your enemy, right? He's not just this figment of your imagination, he's not just the cartoon character that represents evil or bad in the world, he's actually a personal enemy of your life. And that changes how we're alert to him, doesn't it? If we're just thinking about Satan as, oh, Satan, is the big he's the guy in the red costume with the pitchfork, he represents all the evil, that's why there's murder and all these different things in the world, but really has no bearing on me, and we're not alert to Satan at all. What Peter says, and what Jesus says, and what all the New Testament writers remind us is that Satan is your personal enemy. Right? He's the enemy of everyone who loves Jesus. So if it's true in your life that you love Jesus, Satan is your personal enemy. And you know what enemies do, right? Not only do they dislike you, but they attack. And they don't seed ground. And they're defensive about everything. And they're offensive about other things. And it's, t- it's time for us in the Western world to realize that Satan is a real enemy. If you're with us through this whole series in the first... Uh, The first installment, as it were, the first sermon of the series, we talked about some of the truth about the reality of Satan, that Satan was created uh, as an angel, high in the order of angels, that Satan, because of pride in his life, desired to have the, the status of God himself, and so he was ejected, kicked out, evicted from the heavenly places, from the mountain of God, and he took with him up to a third of the angels, Revelation would suggest. And he leads them in rebellion to God, trying to establish his own kingdom. Everything in rebellion to the advance of the kingdom of God. So, if you love Jesus, you're part of the kingdom of God. And therefore, you are his staunch enemy. And he's going to come at you in every way possible. It's time for us to be alert to that. No one says that, I don't say it, to sort of spook you out. Like, uh, when I was younger, when, I, when you think about the de- Satan or, or demons or devil, and if you were at a church and you hear about that, like it's the cause for nightmares, right? You start thinking about these creepy and weird things that happen. We don't talk about it in that way. Because as you'll see, it's most likely not the way that Satan is going to manifest himself towards you. He is a subtle deceiver. And that's what we need to talk about this morning. He is not in a red suit with a pitchfork. He is the human whisperer. You ever watch those, those shows, The Dog Whisperer or whatever? The guy that can make the dog do anything he wants to? Satan is a human whisperer. Quite literally, whispering in our ears causing us to do almost anything, right? That we were thinking unimaginable before. It's time for us to be alert to him as real as our enemy. Second thing that Peter says about him is he's roaming, right? He roams around like a roaring lion searching for someone to devour This is enemy language, right? Satan is not just out there looking to... He's not just you're walking by and he's the guy in junior high that pops out from a locker and sticks his foot out so you trip. He wants to devour you. Like he wants to consume you and leave nothing left. What does it mean, this roaming nature? Well, we need to talk about what Satan isn't and then what we can talk about what Satan is, right? First thing that Satan isn't, Satan is not omnipresent, right? Satan has none of the divine attributes of God. We, unfortunately, oftentimes give them to him, and we're wrong in doing that. Satan is not omnipresent. The word omnipresent just means that he's everywhere at the same time, right? God is that way. So when the Bible speaks of God as being present with you, that's just as true here as it is for the dresslers in Palestine. At the same time, God is everywhere. He's present with us as the omnipresence of God, we like to talk about Satan in those terms, right? Well, Satan did this to me. Well, if Satan's doing this to me, then he can be nowhere else. He's right here with me. Satan is not omnipresent. He's only in one place at one time, which means, if we're going to, to string this out logically, probably Satan has never done anything to you, right? He's got bigger fish to fry. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit in this, uh, in this talk this morning about Martin Luther and some of his encounters with Satan, I believe that that probably was Satan, right? Because Martin Luther had a whole bunch of stuff going on that you and I probably don't have going on, right? We're not leading a Protestant Reformation, translating the Bible into a new language, so forth and so on. We're just trying to make it through our weeks, you know, and, and, and live, live the way that God called us to. I'm just trying to get through a week without yelling at my kids, right? Or without getting angry or bitter about things that are not that way. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't forces working against us. So, Satan is not omnipresent, but what he is, is roaming on a mission to devour, right? He's not everywhere, but just because we say he's not everywhere should not make us not think about him and be alert to him, because he is roaming, prowling, never stationary, always looking to devour, and most importantly, looking to impose larger schemes that can take down multiple people, right? This is who Satan is. The roaming nature of Satan. Second thing, Satan is not omnipotent, right? That just means all-powerful. Satan can't do anything. God is omnipotent. God has all power. God is the creator of the universe. He spoke the universe into creation. Ex nihilo, we say, out of nothing. He's all-powerful. We can pray to God and expect him to do uh, miraculous things. Satan is not all-powerful. However... Satan is incredibly powerful. Satan is not all powerful, but he is incredibly powerful. So for us, we tend to go one way or the other, right? Satan's all powerful, or Satan's just that guy. I'm not worried about him, he's got no bearing on my life. Well, Satan's incredibly powerful. How do we know? One, he had a very high status, the prophets remind us, before God. He was a powerful angel that commanded legions of angels. Two, look at the rebellion against God in our world, right? And and the way that he has orchestrated and enabled and empowered and led that. Three, there are instances in scripture which lead us to believe that angels of God are not powerful enough in and of themselves in the face of Satan. So in the letter of Jude, which many of you probably have never read, like if you flip two pages by accident, you skip right over it. Uh, there's, There's an instance where the archangel Michael Basically says to God, hey, if you want to bring an accusation against Satan, you do it. Don't ask me to do it, right? Basically saying, I don't know. I don't want to be part, of, like, I don't have the power or the authority to do that. So we get this idea of Satan with an extreme amount of power, right? Extreme amount of power. Uh, same way in Daniel chapter 10, there's this instance where David, or excuse me, David, Daniel is praying and he's not receiving answers to his prayers going on for like 21 days come to find out the angel that god had sent to him to minister to him was being detained by what was called a prince of persia an angel a demon of a white authority who would be subservient to satan himself was was holding an angel right so we get this idea of power there's absolute power there this is not just a a figment of our imagination right satan has extreme power Not omnipotent, but powerful. Satan is not omniscient, right? By omniscient, we mean all-knowing. He doesn't know everything, okay? God knows everything. God is omniscient. He's all-wise, knows everything. We're told that Christ is the source of all wisdom, right? Satan is not that, but what Satan is, is extremely cunning, Scripture tells us, right? In 2 Corinthians 11, when Paul's writing about that, he speaks of the reason that Eve ate of the fruit in the garden was because of the, the unbelievable, cunning nature of Satan to trick her and deceive her. So what Satan is, basically, think about it this way. He's an opponent of us who has had from the beginning of creation to study up on our weaknesses, right? He doesn't just know them because he knows them, but he's been deceiving humanity for thousands upon thousands of years. And so he knows how to do it, right? It's like, it's like uh, the veteran pitchers who pitch. Remember Jamie Moyer? You guys ever you watch baseball? Jamie Moyer is a pitcher for the Phillies who pitched like, till he was like 47 years old. And he threw, I think the fa- his fastball was clocked at like 22 miles per hour. He right? so, didn't pitch fast at all. But he would throw these curveballs and these little cutters and he had success later on because the reason he had success was not his talent or his ability, but the way that he studied hitters and knew them for the breadth of time was able to attack them in their weaknesses. And Satan is that way, right? He doesn't know everything, but he has studied up on you, right? And, and he has studied up on humanity and he knows how to attack humanity because at our core, we all have the same issue, right, rebellion, we want to run our own lives, and he knows that's, that's the ticket, if I go for that, I'm going to have success, We so all these years to do it, and certainly, though Satan may not be the one coming at you, or I, or our church, or any other way, the demons that are underneath him, the same way, thousands upon thousands of years of studying up on this, not omniscient, but extremely cunning, fourth thing we need to say, Satan is not sovereign, right, He doesn't rule over everything. Everything doesn't point to him. He's not the king, as it were. But he is the prince of this world, right? He's the god of this world, Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 4. He rules over a vast empire, but he's not the sovereign over all creation. So we get this idea of Satan. While he is not divine, he is extremely cunning, extremely powerful, It has vast resources at his disposal. Our own flesh, corporate flesh, the world, uh, demonic forces, so forth and so on, that that are underneath him and moving towards him. And he is on a mission to devour. This is the roaming nature of Satan. We have to be alert to this. If we're not talking about this, if we're not praying about this, if we're not thinking about this, if we're not pointing each other back towards these realities, then we're going to be at a great disadvantage when we face it. Showing up to battle with an unloaded gun, showing up to battle without any shield, showing up to battle without any armor on us. And for many of us, myself included, we oftentimes engage in battle this way. Have to be alert, be alert to the reality of Satan, be alert to the roaming nature of Satan. And then the third thing we want to say on this and then move on is we need to be alert to his schemes, right? So the Bible oftentimes talks about the schemes of the devil. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll read there in a few minutes, Paul talks about putting on the armor of God so that you can resist the schemes of the devil. The Greek word for schemes, uh, actually we get our English word method from. This is how Satan operates. This is what he does. This is his playbook. This is what he goes to, right? If we understand the playbook of Satan... We are at a greater advantage when we face his arsenal against us. So, think for a minute about all the names that Satan has been given in scriptures. He's been given names like the destroyer, the deceiver, the evil one, Lucifer. Satan itself is a name, devil is a name also given of him. He's been called a murderer, he's been called a liar, an adversary, an enemy an accuser. All of these things are descriptors of Satan. When you read all these different names, they give you insight into how Satan attacks the kingdom of God. But what's interesting to me is the name that Peter chooses here in this segment of verses. He calls him the devil, right? And that's a common name that we, that we speak of when we talk about Satan. The, the name here is actually more of a verb than it is a noun. It means to lie or to slander, diabolos. And in many ways, liar is the best name for Satan because it defines exactly all of his methods. At the core of who Satan is, is a liar. He is proficient at lying. He is unbelievably talented at lying. He or his minions lie to you almost by the minute. And for most of us, we are given to his lies almost all of the time. Partly because we don't know that it's actually him telling us these things. We just think, what kind of thought is that? Right? But yet he's whispering these lies into us, or his demons are whispering these lies into us. If we would be alert to his schemes, we'd be actually able to resist, actually able to engage back as Peter would have us. The devil, a liar. Martin Luther said it this way about the devil the extreme cunning nature of the devil is all pointed towards separating man from the word of God, right? All pointed towards separating man from the word of God. That's why Jesus, when he received lies from Satan, rested in the word of God. He said, Scripture says, or this is what God says. We know that ultimately the word of God, though it's certainly a scripture, more more distinctly is Jesus himself. The lies of Satan are meant to separate you from your connection to Christ. This is his method. This is how he attacks us. And the reality is that by lying to us, he's actually enraging in us and, and, and fanning the flames of, of the rebellion of our flesh in us. He knows how we're disposed. He knows that he only has to do a few things to, make the, to stoke the flames, as it were. And it changes everything for us we think about satan and how he lies his schemes what goes on two things are really kind of categories of the lies of satan and certainly maybe this is a simplistic way to do it but there's we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours satan lies by tempting you and satan lies by accusing you he lies by tempting you and he lies by accusing you and think about this for a minute When Satan lies by tempting you, how does he stir up rebellion in you? How does Satan stir up rebellion in you by lying by tempting you, right? He makes you think too highly of yourself, so you go and do things you shouldn't do. How does Satan lie in accusing you? He makes you think too low of yourself, so you go and do things you shouldn't do, right? You see it? See how the cycle works, the temptation and the accusation? In temptation, uh, Satan, as he always does, is giving you things of God and withholding things of God at the same time. That's how he's subtle in his lies, right? It's what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, God doesn't want, he just doesn't want you to eat of this because you'll be like him, but you could really do it. He takes the words of God and he twists them. So when he's tempting you, oftentimes, it's clouded in this idea of God is love. God is forgiving. And he holds back the holiness of God, the judgment for sin. God, right? Think of how many people in our world think of God as a giant teddy bear who just loves people. Absolutely true, but you're being blinded by the other part of God, his holiness, that demands there be judgment against sin unless you've been restored by Christ, right? Subtle deception of Satan. You see it all through our world, right? Subtle, because there's so much truth in that. That that expounding on the love of God is completely true, but you're being blinded by the other part. And think about accusation, right? Think about it. He's making us think too lowly of ourselves, so we go and do something we don't. In this case, Satan is blinding us to the love of God and showing us the holiness of God. You see it? Well, God has this standard, and you aren't meeting it, right? And what are you going to do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. You're accused. And he's totally blinding you to the love of God that says you're forgiven, you're redeemed, I love you, you're accepted, it doesn't matter what you did. You see, see the subtle nature of how the lies of Satan get at us in temptation and in accusation? Uh, there was a Puritan pastor named Thomas Brooks who wrote an unbelievable book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Now, if you're like me, reading books that were written in the mid-1600s does not excite you, Right? because you all, it's almost like reading in another language. You've got to translate it and make all kinds of sense of it. But this book is really super good, because what Thomas Brooks tries to do is tries to take these ideas of temptation and accusation and give very practical ways that Satan attempts to whisper lies to you. So I want to read these to you. And listen to these as you listen to them. Think to yourself, I've heard that one, Right? Right? Think about this in temptation. Thomas Brooks writes, one of the ways that Satan lies to us in temptation is he presents the bait and hides the hook. What that means is he's telling you temporary satisfaction, momentary um, joy, but he's hiding the hook, which means later misery, right? We move into all those instant gratification moments and don't think about all that comes after it. He presents the bait and hides the hook. Have you been tempted by Satan that way? I bet you have. By painting sin with virtue's colors, right? In other words, hey, what you're doing isn't bad. You're doing it for a good reason. Have you been tempted that way? Have you been lied to? It? Like, I'm not being nosy. I'm just concerned, right? Or in church circles, you'll get this one. I'm not gossiping. I'm just giving a prayer request. So many ways that we do that. What we're actually doing is wrong, but we're talking about it in virtuous ways, right? Right? Well, I understand that ordinarily this would be wrong, but you don't understand why I'm doing it, right? Satan is whispering temptation, deceit, lies to you that is justifying wrong things by extenuating and lessening sin. In other words, this thing that you're being tempted to do is not a big deal, right? It's the old telling a white lie, right? Well, it's not like a big lie. It's just this little lie, right? I'm just, you know, I'm just fudging this little bit. It's not like I'm lying about my taxes. I'm just lying about this expense or whatever, right? We do that all the time. We extenuate and lessen sins the Satan whispering to us. By showing to the soul the best man's sins. In other words, here's this guy who loves Jesus and look at all his failures. If he can't do it, then none of us can do it. So let's just go live like we, ought, like we want to, right? Throw caution to the wind and do it. You see, you're in a church and the pastor has a great moral failure and you see the way that Satan uses that to affect other people's lives. If he can't do it and he's leading the church, none of us can do it. So let's stop trying. By presenting God to the soul as one made up of all mercy, right? In other words, doesn't matter what you do. God's full of mercy. He's going to forgive you. He'll take care of it. His mercy is greater than your sin. True? Absolutely true. But it shouldn't be a reason to go sin, right? Paul tells us that in Romans 6. By persuading the soul that repentance is easy, and therefore the soul need not scruple about sinning. In other words, okay, so I did this wrong thing, but at the end of the night I'm going to pray for forgiveness and it'll all be gone. True? Yes. But by making the soul bold to venture upon the occasions of sin. What does Brooks mean by that? He means overestimating your ability to resist sin, right? Oh, I can, you know, I can go here but not participate in this. And then you get there, and slowly but surely, you're drawn into the thing that you thought you could resist. It's a whisper the lie, the temptation of Satan. You're not going to do that thing. Just go ahead and go there, right? And then what ends up happening, you know? By representing to the soul the outward mercies enjoyed by men walking in their sin and their freedom from outward misery. In other words, why do good things happen to bad people, Right? All these guys that aren't trying to live the right way, seems like great things are happening to them, and I'm trying to do the right things, and bad things are happening to me, so I'm going to start living like that. Have you heard that one? Absolutely you've heard that one, right? By presenting to the soul the crosses, losses, sorrows, and suffering that daily attend those who walk in the way of holiness. In other words, my life stinks right now. I deserve a little something, right? Look at this hard time I've gone through. I deserve this thing, right? Have you heard that one? I know you have. We've all heard that one, right? Uh, By causing saints to compare themselves in their ways with those reputed to be worse than themselves. In other words, all I did was this. At least I didn't kill someone, right? All I did was this. I didn't rape someone. I just did this. I told this little little white lie. I didn't rob someone. Have you heard that one? Of course you've heard that, right? Right? By polluting the souls and judgments of men with dangerous errors that lead to looseness and wickedness, i.e., redefining sin as not sin. How much has that pervaded our life? You know, well, that's not really sin. And over time, more things become not really sin until all things are not really sin. And then the last one that Brooks uses is by leading men to choose wicked company. In other words you're not going to do anything bad. Just go hang out with these people. Be with them constantly. And they're not going to affect you. But over time, they do. Here's what Brooks lists in Under Accusation. By causing saints to remember their sins more than their Savior. Isn't that so good? The way that Satan accuses you or his demons accuse you is to bring your sins to mind more than Christ is in your mind. Uh, Parenting books tell us that For every one criticism you give to your child, you need to give at least five to ten compliments because the criticism so lodges in their mind that it blurs out all the other things. Satan's aware of this. He criticizes you for your sin. You need to look at Jesus five to ten times for every one time you've been criticized with your sin. By causing saints to make false definitions of their graces, in other words, doubting that they're actually saved, doubting that they're eternally secure. By causing saints to make false inferences from the cross-actings of providence. By suggesting to the saints that their graces are not true but counterfeit. In other words, all these things that, that, that that are said to be true of you aren't actually true of you. By suggesting to the saints that the conflict that is in them is found only in hypocrites and profane souls. In other words, these things that you're doing, there's no way someone could actually be a Christian and do them. Have you heard that one? You've heard that one constantly, right? By suggesting that, uh, to the saint who has lost joy and comfort that his state is not good. In other words, we feel like when we go through difficult times, God is punishing us. Right? Not true. God doesn't punish sin in that way. By reminding the saint of his frequent relapses into sin formerly repented of and prayed for. Now, Brooks' list is unbelievable, isn't it? And we could go on and on and on and on and on the ways that Satan subtly whispers lies of temptation and accusation into your mind. And, and we always jump for it when he lures us that way because he knows in us is this need for rebellion, to think too high of ourselves or too low of ourselves because ultimately we want to think too high of ourselves. And he lures us into this mess. In terms of the accusation stuff, if you ever want to read about the, the life and times of Martin Luther, I would encourage you to do it. He had unbelievable encounters with Satan, and almost all of his encounters with Satan or demon and demons were the demons bringing sin in his life to his mind. He, Luther was tormented by his sin. Before his conversion, he did so much penance because he just wanted desperately to be forgiven of his sins, never, ever felt forgiven of his sins. He washed floors after all the other monks had left the monastery. He was down scrubbing them as hard as he could. He just desperately wanted rid of his sins. When he came to understand through reading Romans that it's, that it's a man who walks in faith that receives the salvation from God, Satan would constantly try to bring back his sin in his face, all the time, reminding him of his sin. He had massive struggles in the night, with Satan about his sin, constantly back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he learned to say, and he preached an unbelievable sermon one day in his church, basically saying, Satan and demons are going to throw your sin in your face constantly. And you need to learn to say to them, and this is a paraphrase of Luther, you say I deserve death and hell. You're right. I do deserve death and hell. But what of it? Christ has taken my place, right? And when you stand in the truth, you reject the accusation from Satan. These are the methods of Satan. We have to be keen and alert to the way that Satan works uh, in our midst. The second thing, then, we need to resist the devil. How do we do this, right? Seems so easy when Peter writes it. Well, just resist him, right? Has Has Peter felt this stuff in his life? Of course he has. You're talking. The guy writing this is the guy who uh, promised Jesus he would never leave his side, and then disowned him three times before that night of promising him he would never leave his side was over. Right? Like he knows how. He knows what epic fail means. Like he is a colossal fall on your face failure in many ways. Just like the rest of us, he knows what it's like. So how can he say resist the devil? Like is it just that easy? Well, he gives us some things in these verses. Listen to this. Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The first key to understanding this idea of resist is this description that Peter gives of a lion. Right? Why does he call Satan a lion? Did you ever think about that? Like, why couldn't he call, he could call him anything. Why a lion? In the Old Testament, there are constant references to lions. So there are men like Samson, Daniel, David, and even in the New Testament, Paul, who face attacks by lions and defeat lions. Right? How do we know, or what do we know about them that leads to their ability to defeat a lion? We know that they're walking in the mission that God had given them, right? They're keen to it. They're doing what God had called them to do. We know that they're living in in worship and connection to God, that they're obedient to God. In all those situations, the lion is defeated. If you have time later this week, I would ask you to read 1 Kings chapter 13, 1 Kings chapter 20, 2 Kings chapter 17. Men faced lions in all three of those chapters and did not fare well. Uh, and some of those, the lion tears them from piece to piece. What do we know about the men in those situations? One of two things is true of them. Either they failed to obey God, or they failed to live in worship of God. Right? So this idea of resisting the devil from the, from the get-go, and you'll see it as in these next few things as we go through here, is all about your connection to God. It is singularly and solely about how much you are connected to God defines if you're able to resist the devil. No connection to God, no ability to resist the devil. Limited connection to God, limited ability to resist the devil. Growing connection to God, growing ability to resist the devil. Mature connection to God, whatever that is, none of us have achieved it yet. Mature ability to resist the devil, right? Until one day when we're fully renewed, ability to trample on the serpent. That's coming for us one day. Everything is about our connection to God. So then listen to what he says, right? Love this. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. The word resist actually is just the word in the Greek. You could translate it very literally, no stand, right? So if we just want to be just straight translation, the way we would translate this is, as for him, no stand. You know I love Seinfeld. Everyone, even if you don't watch much Seinfeld, knows the soup Nazi episode, right? They have to come in, they have to do everything right, and otherwise, he says to them, no soup for you, and gets them out of there, right? That's that's the kind of disposition we're called to have against Satan. No room, no stand, no soup for Satan. He's out of there, cast out, gone, no, not giving you any place to stand. As for him, no stand. Not a piece, not an ounce, not a bit. When we do that, He doesn't have the space to whisper into us. But when we give him footholds and handholds and beachheads in our life, he's got a position of power from which to speak into our lives, right? That's why Peter says if you're going to resist him, you need to understand what the word resist means. It means don't give him a place to stand. Because if you give him a place to stand, you can't resist him. How do you not give him a place to stand? A few things I want to suggest to you. You need to be self-aware, right? You know your weaknesses better than anyone else knows your weaknesses, save maybe your spouse or your best friend. If you're aware of your weaknesses, you can better be sure that you are going to be attacked in your weaknesses, right? The uh, The great myths of the Greek... Achilles was killed because he got shot in the heel, right? Not because someone found a way to defeat him in his armor. It was the weakness that led to his defeat. The same is true for you. You know your weaknesses. Maybe your weakness is sexual sin. Maybe your weakness is overeating. Maybe your weakness is feeling bad about yourself. Maybe your weakness is feeling too good about yourself. Maybe your weakness is materialism. Maybe your weakness is all of those things. You can be certain that your attacks will come in those areas. So be aware and set up boundaries, build fences, keep your guard up, right? If, if, you're, if you struggle with pornography, you should have filters on your computers, right? It's as simple as that. Or you, shouldn't have the, you should put a computer in a room where everyone is. If you struggle with drinking too much, you shouldn't spend time at a bar, right? Simple fences that we can put up, and I make those examples to be broad examples. You know the specifics of your life. You know, if you eat too much cookies, stop buying cookies. Otherwise, you're going to eat them when they're in your house. So forth and so on. Simple fences that you can put up because you know the weaknesses. In the same way, though it might not be visible, you know your emotional vulnerabilities. And you need to put up fences because Satan will tempt you in them. If you are vulnerable to think too little of yourself, he's going to accuse you constantly. And you felt it if you're that way. Always under accusation. What you probably haven't done is given, has said he's the one doing it. You've just said, this is who I am. I'm no good. That's not true. And you don't even actually believe that about yourself. You've been convinced by someone else. You've listened to the lies. Stop receiving accusation. Stand against it. Give him no ground to do it. Understand your vulnerabilities, your emotional weaknesses. Invite other people into your lives to ward them off with you. Right? Emotional vulnerabilities are not ones that you can build fences in and of yourself. You need other people. That's the way it is. They will see it when you don't, and they'll call you on it, and you'll find that they will be the ones that renounce the ground of Satan in your life for you and with you. I can put filters on my computer so I don't see things I don't want to do. How do I keep myself from sliding into depression? I need other people. Right? Luther knew this. One of the greatest ways to fall into the trappings of Satan is to be isolated. He counseled all of his people, listen, go plow the field if you have to. This is a paraphrase from Luther. Go plow the stinking field if you have to, even though you might not want to work. It's better to do that than to be home alone with your thoughts. You must be self-aware, and you must build fences, and building fences almost always means inviting other people into your life provide accountability with you. Accountability isn't a bad thing. They're not people standing there saying, look at all the bad things you do in your life. Accountability is a good thing. They're saying, Satan, you have no room here. You can't come into this person's life. In the name of Jesus, you're gone. That's accountability, not the other. People don't come into accountability in your life to feel better about themselves because you're worse than them. They come into your life because they agree with you that Satan shouldn't have this effect on you, so they'll stand against it with you. No room. Ask for him. No stand. Self-aware. Second thing, be, you have to stay pure, right? We've, all the way through Romans, all the way through this series in spiritual warfare, we know that when sin is present in your life, especially habitual sin, you will give ground to Satan and he will, op, will establish bases of power and operate with power in your life. When you are living in constant sin, you are prone to all kinds of sin. So you need to be pure. You need to repent. Hey, being pure doesn't mean you're constantly without sin. It means you understand the process of repentance and moving forward. When there's habitual sin in your life, there's unbelievable grounds for Satan to accuse you of it and drop you into the pit of despair or to fan the flame for more and more and more in temptation. You've you, you got to be away from it. You have to. Input and Output. You need to be keenly aware that the things you put in will affect what comes out, right? So what you are around, what you are listening to, what you are reading, what you are watching, who you surround yourselves with, will have constantly, this is a sociological reality, it's even a scriptural reality, right? It's a sociological reality. If you're constantly working in a job that you hate, your life's going to be miserable, right? It's a sociological reality that Whatever your environment is putting into you is almost always coming out of you. So if you're in an environment constantly that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, and listen, this isn't, a, this isn't an urge to you to go be part of some Christian subculture. That's just as bad quite frankly. Right? So that's not what I'm saying. No, don't, be, don't be in the world at all. You need to create this bubble and live in it. I'm not talking about that at all. What I'm saying is if you don't have the right balance in your life of the right things coming in, then you are going to be completely affected by all the wrong things that you're So input and output totally affects us constantly. And the last thing then in this idea is you must be, you must be connected to Christ. In a John 15 way, where Jesus says, abide in me, like come live in me. And he talks about the vine and the branch, this idea of clinging to Jesus, this idea of wrapping yourself around him like a frightened child onto a daddy's leg, right? Though God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, it's a perfect image for how tightly we should be bound to Christ. Right? And we should be in a full-on embrace. Because when you are that way, what kind of room is there for Satan? Right? What kind of room is there for Satan? The next phrase that Peter uses is stand firm in the faith. Resist him. Give him no ground. Stand firm in the faith. What does this mean? Standing firm in the faith. What it means, quite literally, is being in Christ. This very thing we just talked about in John 15. In fact, this is Peter's the way Peter talks about here, standing firm in faith, is exactly the way Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6, where he says, "Put on the armor of God." Right? Uh, I need to tell you something this morning. The armor of God is not a magical potion. Right? I used to think this is and maybe this. Is, maybe you're not as naive as me. When I was a kid, and we were told to put on the armor of God, like I learned to like say a prayer in the morning, putting on the armor of God, and I'd put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, and think that I was ready for the day. And yet, the days never went well, or I never stood in victory in those days. Because the truth of the matter is, you're not supposed to say a little prayer and think that imagine and sprinkle magical pixie dust over you, and then the armor of God rests on you, and you you can extinguish all the flames of God. We've taught this moralistically; it's wrong. The armor of God is Jesus, right? The armor of God is the gospel. The armor of God is just an allegory, just a a picture of what it means to stand firmly defended in Christ. You don't just pray on a breastplate of righteousness. You stand in Christ because Jesus is your righteousness. And when Satan accuses you with a flaming dart, he can accuse you all you want. It's not based on your righteousness. It's on the righteousness of Christ. You put up the, field, the shield of faith, which in the old days was a shield from foot to head, right? Those big shields, they would advance. And the shield of faith, even that is not dependent upon your faithfulness. It's about the faithfulness of Christ, right? The faithful one. You put on the helmet of salvation, which rejects the, the tricks of Satan in our mind, the temptation, the evil lying whispers. But that's not some magical potion you put on of salvation. Jesus is your salvation, He's the one that protects you from those things. When you stand in the truth of Christ, you can actually resist the devil. It's not some little prayer we teach in in Sunday school. It's the reality of standing in Christ. The belt of truth, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth, the one that holds it all together. Feet fit with peace. Jesus is our peace. And so we can walk in peace. The armor of God is a beautiful picture of Romans chapter 13 where Paul says stand in Christ. Right? Stand in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of 1 Peter chapter 5 where Peter says stand firm in the faith. The armor of God is the gospel. I should tell you this. It is not intellectual you can't, by creed, say, well, I believe all those things about Jesus, so now I'm prepared. It is a walk of faith. Which means you must not only believe it intellectually, but believe it in the trust of your life. That's the difference. Most all of us believe it intellectually. But we still engage in it in defeat. Why? Because we don't really believe it. We don't really believe it's true. We're still counting on our own righteousness. We're still counting on our own... Ability to make peace. We're still counting on our own ability to do these things. But if we really truly stand in the truth of the gospel, when the gospel comes to fully define all that, all that we are and intend, to, God intends us to be, then you will find the ability to resist the devil actually quite easy. Because what you have in Christ demands nothing else. So any temptation that is sent your way is no longer tempting. And any accusation is sent your way is almost silly, right? Now, I say those things in a trite way because I know in the reality of our lives it isn't that way. But the reason it isn't that way is because we don't really believe the gospel. We believe it intellectually. Certainly, we believe it enough to be with God and to be saved. I'm not suggesting you're not really followers of Jesus. What I'm saying is we need to constantly grow in aligning ourselves with the gospel. Think about it this way. We said that temptation was thinking too high of yourself and therefore doing something wrong. The gospel is the perfect defeat for that, isn't it? Because in the gospel, we're told that we're, we're horrible sinners. You can't think too highly of yourself. There's nothing good in you, Paul writes, right? Your righteousness is like filthy rags. We don't need to talk about what filthy rags means. It means what you think it might mean, right? And so when Satan comes and says, oh, you can do whatever you want, you know, you're a good guy, guys. You can say, well, no, no, I'm not. I'm a horrible sinner. And in fact, Jesus was crushed because of my sin. And so every act of sin that I commit thereafter actually is adding to the crushing blow of Jesus on the cross. So if Jesus is my Savior, why would I want to do that? You defeat temptation when you stand in the gospel. Accusation says you have a too low of your view of yourself and therefore you do things that you, that you shouldn't do. The gospel is the perfect antidote to that too, is it not? Satan accuses you and you, just like Martin Luther, say what you're saying is true. But this is also truth. I am fully loved and fully accepted by my Father in Heaven because of Christ Jesus. And you defeat accusation. Resist the devil. Stand firm in your faith. Know the gospel. And I know we're running way over time here, but this last thing, we have to say it. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. If resisting the devil, means standing firm in faith if it means giving him no ground to stand on what it also means is turning to your family and by family here peter doesn't mean your family unit maybe he does maybe if you're blessed to have a family unit that stands strong with you that way then he means that but what he's talking to is your church family Right? Or more importantly, your family in Christ. Because for many of you, your family in Christ extends beyond the church, and I think that's fantastic and actually should, be, should happen for all of us. When you face the temptation and accusation and lies of the devil, if you learn to turn to your family, you will find power in numbers. Right? You will find power in numbers. The first thing you will find is that you are not alone. The lies of Satan have affected everyone, right? Even Jesus was tempted in the same way as we are. And so to anyone who loves Jesus that you turn to, they've been there, they've done that, they've felt it, they understand. It's not just you. Not just you. And the second thing, if we would learn to live in community with each other, now this is contradictory to modern Western life. Most of us live somewhat isolated lives, and that is so dangerous. Right? Well, I've got one or two close friends. Dangerous. Right? You need to be dependent upon your Christian family. Right? I'm dependent upon you. You should be dependent upon me. Right? We should depend upon those we're close to and those we are not close to. The continue with the whole collection of it. Completely dependent upon it, because in numbers we find strength in the battle that's against us. Learn to live in community. And the third thing, and I love to talk about this, and it sort of brings it all back to Martin Luther. Lives are meant to be replicated. When you turn to your family, you should find in them a life that you would like to replicate in your own life. Right? Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. The, he, the writer of the Hebrews says, you should you should love your leaders so much that you want to replicate their faith? You know? Who is it in your life that you are trying to replicate? Right? Listen, I'm not telling you to raise someone to a messianic level. That, of course, would be sinful. Right? And we do that in our world. We, we make pastors be these perfect people and, we, and then when they do something wrong, which they do all the time, by the way, me included, we're like crushed by it because we can't believe that they would do that. And I'm not talking about that but someone who's honestly, in a broken way, trying to follow Jesus earnestly. You should find some of those people and try to model what they're doing, right? And, and not just now, but in the Bible times and in every time in between. When the writer to Hebrews says, you have such a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before you, so fix your eyes on Jesus and walk the walk of faith. The key, one of the key parts to that is the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before you. One of the ways we learn how to fix our eyes on Jesus is because we've seen people in the Bible do it. We've seen people in the history of the church do it. We've seen people in our present lives do it. That's how we learn, right? For one of those people for me is Martin Luther. You've caught glimpses of it today, right? You need to have some Christian heroes. They better not be messiahs. That would be really bad. So don't mishear me. But you better have some Christian heroes better know they're broken and they're fallen and they don't do everything right. right? Martin Luther, um, some would suggest, liked beer a little bit too much. Others would suggest it was a bit of an anti-Semite. And he hated the, the epistle to James, so he didn't even believe in the full canon of scripture. Was he broken? You better believe it. Is he a life to follow after? Absolutely. Right? Who is that in your life? That's how you can walk the life that God has called us to. Friends, if you've heard nothing else, hear this from me this morning. You have everything you need to resist the devil. His name is Jesus. So stand in him. Give the devil no ground. Be fully connected to Jesus. Put on the armor of God, but when you're doing it, know you're just standing in Christ. And know that you can't just believe it intellectually. You have to actually walk in faith. And find other people from Bible times, from every time between now and then, and people in the present who have the same commitments in their life, so that you can be supported by them, so you can experience failure in them and with them and in you, and so you can find some heroes to champion your walk with Christ. Luther, I'll leave you with this. This is an unbelievable story. Had come to understand he could resist the devil. And so, later on in his life, he was sleeping, and he was awoken, startled in the night, and was awoken, feeling like some, something was wrong, something was there. And so, he lit a candle, and he went to check all the doors in the house to make sure they were locked, and he came back to his bedroom, and he saw what he supposed to be the devil himself, seated in a chair in the corner of his bedroom, to which Luther replied, oh, it's just you blew out his candle and went back to bed. It can be true of you. It can be true of you, too. Let me pray with you.